Last Sunday we noted Paul's call to prayer in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And we ended with verse 8, really challenging men to pray. I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Today, then, we look at 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 through 15, where Paul addresses women, the portrait of a godly woman. 1 Timothy 2, beginning at verse 9. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper, proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctify and sanctity with self-restraint. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you and praise you for the privilege to worship you today. And thank you, Lord, for your word as as you teach us as men and women what your desire is for us. Thank you, God, that you have called us to a living relationship with you. You have paid the price and the cross for our sins. You have died for us. You have been raised to life. And thank you for that blessed assurance that we can claim today that Jesus Christ is our Savior and our Lord. Teach us, we pray. In your name we ask. Amen. If I asked all of you to paint a picture of a woman, I think every picture would be a little bit different because every woman is a little bit different. Uh, Some are taller, some are shorter, some are thinner, some are not as thin. (laughs) Some are young, some are not so young. And so as I look across and view all of you, you're just a little bit different in a good sense. (laughs) But if I ask you to paint a picture of what the New Testament describes as a godly woman, uh, there would be common characteristics, because as you examine the New Testament teaching on what a godly woman is, you find some similarities, both here in 1 Timothy and in other epistles. And Paul gives us three characteristics of a godly woman in this passage. First of all, a godly woman has a proper adornment, a proper adornment. Some people seem to think that God doesn't really care what we look look like on the outside because he looks at the heart. And there's a certain sense in which that is true. What is most important is what's in the heart. But that's really not the whole story. While it is true that God is most concerned about the heart, it is also true that how we appear on the outside should not contradict what we are on the inside. This is why Paul gives instruction then to Christian women about how they adorn themselves. Look at verses 9 and 10. 
Paul says, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Now, there are two principles that Paul gives here about outward adornment. First of all, Christian women are to dress with modesty. Verse 9, he talks about adorning themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. And the word modestly is kind of an interesting word. It comes from a word that means to have a sense of shame. Uh, the King James Version actually translates it with shamefacedness. <laughs> and I'm not sure if that's an actual word that we use very often, but that's the word that the King James, with shamefacedness. Uh, William Hendrickson describes it as a shrinking from trespassing the boundaries of propriety. Uh, Warren Wiersbe says a woman who possesses this quality is ashamed to go beyond the bounds of what is decent and proper. In other words, there is a line that shouldn't be crossed when it comes to how a Christian woman adorns herself. And Hendrickson goes on to say they do not have to balk at fashion unless a particular fashion happens to be immoral or Indecent. And that can be a challenge in our culture today because there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of shame in our culture today, does there? The way that men and women dress, it's just like, you know, they're going to flaunt everything they have. And Paul says that is not the way a godly woman would adorn herself. Modesty is the key word here. And then in verse 9, he talks about women, uh, Christian women are to dress in a way that isn't overly extravagant. He says, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Now, Paul has been uh, severely criticized for some by some for writing about braided hair, as if to say, what's wrong with braiding your hair? But there is some background here that we really need to understand so we don't uh, misunderstand what he's saying here. Uh, Hendrickson says, uh, what about these braids which were popular in the world in Paul's day? He says, no expense was spared to make them dazzling. They actually sparkled. The braids were fastened by jeweled tortoise shell combs or by pins of ivory or silver. Or the pins were of bronze with jeweled heads. The more varied and, the ex and expensive, the better. He said the pinheads often consisted of miniature images like an animal, a human hand, an idol, the female figure, etc. He said braids in those days often represented fortunes. They were articles of luxury. And then he says the Christian woman is warned not to indulge in such extravagance. Now, I am not going to draw the line for any woman and, and tell her what she ought to wear. 
But the lesson here, I think, is pretty clear. We ought not to be out seeking to impress people with our clothing, but our godly character. And that's what Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3, very similar to what Paul says here. He says in verse 3, Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. So does it matter what you wear? Does it make a difference how we as believers in Jesus dress? I think the New Testament would say yes. Yes, to dress modestly and not being overly extravagant. So Paul says a godly woman has a proper adornment. Secondly, he goes on to say that a godly woman has a proper attitude. In verse 11, he says, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. When Paul says that a woman must quietly receive instruction, it's obvious that he is placing this command in the context of pastoral ministry or in the context of a public proclamation of God's Word. Because notice in verse 12 what he goes on to say. He says, But I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now the culture in which we live today does not like to hear verses like this. But I'll tell you what, the New Testament does not support the idea of women pastors. In verse 11, Paul says that a woman is to receive instruction with submissiveness, which means literally to line up under. And so instead of exercising authority over men in the church, Paul says that women are to line up under them. Some have tried to ignore this principle by saying that this is really just a a cultural thing. This is the way it was in Paul's day, and we can't really apply this to our day today, and so therefore we don't really have to follow this principle. And yet, Paul says, no, this, he, he, he goes back to Genesis to support what he's saying. Verse 13, he says, for, at, for it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So he makes two arguments in support of men serving in public ministry. The first is the order of creation. Adam was first formed, and then Eve. And that has nothing to do with Adam being better than Eve. It simply has to do with the God-given role of men and women. As Adam was created to be the leader in the home, men are created to be leaders in the church, and so it has nothing to do with culture whatsoever. The second argument has to do with the fall into sin in verse 14. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. And so Eve fell for Satan's temptation when she ignored her God-given position. Instead of following 
she chose to lead. This is not to say that there is no place for women in ministry of the church. There obviously is. And thank God for godly women who in the congregation have used the gifts that God has given them, but it is not in the pastoral ministry. Proper attitude of the Christian woman in the church is that of submission. Thirdly, Paul says, a godly woman has a proper assurance. Verse 15, Paul says, But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Now, you probably realize that this is one of those verses that has created a lot of different views. What is Paul saying here? What is he teaching here? And some of you are smiling to yourself saying, how is he going to handle this one, right? Aren't you? How many of you are thinking that right now? Okay, I'm just going to give the benediction and we're going to conclude our service, huh? (laughs) Well, here's what I think it means. After taking us back to the fall, like he did in verse 14, it isn't surprising that Paul would mention the bearing of children. Because, as was read from Genesis chapter 3, what was the result of sin for women in terms of children? Well, let's read it again. Genesis chapter 3 and Verse 16 says, To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And so ever since the fall into sin, women have experienced the pain of childbirth. And those of you ladies who have gone through childbirth, you understand. I don't really understand what that's like, but I know you do, and so I'm not going to claim that I know exactly how you feel, okay? I would be uh, probably have my head cut off at the door if I said, I know exactly how you feel, honey. Okay, there, there is the pain of, of childbirth, and many have even died in childbirth. Now, we can be grateful in our day today that it's, much safer to have a baby than it was 100 years ago or 200 years ago. And so women throughout history really understand what this means, the pain of of childbirth, and how easy it would be for women to despair and feel that God is against them. God has cursed them because of Eve. And to this sense of despair, Paul responds with the hope of the gospel. The pain of childbearing isn't God's final word to women. Just as the cursing of the ground isn't God's final word to men. Because Paul goes on to say to to Adam, because you have sinned, the ground is cursed because of you. In toil you shall eat until you die and then you'll return to dust. That's not God's final word to men, and that wasn't God's final word to women, that they'd have pain in childbearing. Why? Because in Jesus, the curse has been removed. 
In Jesus, the curse that came upon us because of our sin has been removed in Christ. And so when Paul says that women will be saved through the bearing of children, he isn't saying that salvation is found in having a baby, okay? (laughs) Otherwise, a lot of us would have no hope. He is saying that in spite of the curse of sin, that curse that brought pain and childbearing, that curse that brought the ground being affected, in spite of the curse upon sin, both women and men can be saved because Jesus became a curse for us. Listen to Paul, what he says in Galatians chapter 3. Verse 10, he says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. And that's us, right? We are under God's curse because we have not obeyed Him. We have fallen short. We have sinned. But then Paul goes on to say in verse 13, Christ redeemed us. From the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Pain and childbirth isn't God's final word to women. Trying to earn our bread by the sweat of our brow is not God's final word to men either. God's word to us is Jesus. God's word to us is the cross. And so he, Jesus became a curse for us. that We might have forgiveness and a right relationship with God. In the film, The Guardian, the viewer is taken into the world of the United States Coast Guard rescue swimmers. Eighteen weeks of intense training prepares these courageous men and women for the task of jumping from helicopters to rescue those who are in danger at sea. And think of that. Hypothermia is a possibility. Death is a possibility. And you might ask, why would someone want to risk their life for strangers? The answer is found in the rescue swimmer's motto. And that model is so that others might live. That's why they do it. So that others might live. And that's why Jesus came into this world, didn't he? So that others might live. He took the curse of our sin upon himself that we might be forgiven. And this is the assurance that godly women stand in today. And it is seen in the way that they live. We sang this morning, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. And I wonder, do you have that blessed assurance today? That's the assurance that godly women stand in today, that the curse upon them in childbearing was not God's final word. 
In the gospel we have hope. In the gospel we have forgiveness. In the cross of Jesus we stand today in his righteousness. As Andrew quoted in our praise time, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you took upon yourself our sin. You became a curse for us. You paid the price for us. And we rejoice in that wonderful assurance that we can have today when we know you as our Savior. And when we have that assurance, Lord, it changes our lives. Changes the way we live, our actions and our attitudes because of what you have done for us. Thank you, Lord, for every godly woman sitting in this place today. Thank you, Father, for their work of ministry. Thank you for all that you have done for us to remove the curse that we might have a right relationship with you. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.